I know that this story about this Biden hire, this guy, Sam Britton, who claims to be non-binary and, and wears women's clothing and wants to be totally outrageous, and he works as a senior energy department official. He is the deputy assistant secretary for spent fuel and waste disposition. And I didn't even know there was such a thing. He's accused of stealing a Vera Bradley suitcase. It's worth over $2,300 from a luggage carousel at the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport. And then he's just using it as his own luggage. And police have spoken to him uh, 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 about it. And he's like, uh, uh, it's my bag. And then it was like, oh, you know, if I took the wrong bag, I'm, uh, uh, I- I'm so sorry. You know, uh, if I had taken the wrong bag, I'm happy to return it. But I don't have any clothes for another individual. That was my clothes when I opened the bag. And then uh, called the police back. was like, oh, you know what? Maybe it was the wrong bag. Guy's a thief. He's now charged with uh, felony theft of a movable property without consent that has a five-year sentence possibility, a $10,000 fine, or both. And the story here is that, you know, people are going to say, well, look at this guy. He's wearing women's clothing and and the makeup and just trying to be outrageous. Uh, already has a, a mental issue and now is a thief. I think the story here is that uh, he, he's, he's a thief. I mean, that's 1,000% to me the story. I think the other part of the story is that people make all sorts of claims in all sorts of ways in all sorts of places. And I am not here to tell people they can't make their claims. Non-binary, I don't quite get it, but I don't have to get it. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. I Look, I forget sometimes if I say hello, so sometimes it comes late. I apologize. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com. A grown-up can do what a grown-up chooses to do, even if I disagree with it, even if I don't understand it, and I don't. Do I think this idea of non-binary is uh, legit? In, in my view, no. In my view, no, it's not legit. It's not an argument that makes any sense uh, to me. I, I I don't personally follow the story. I don't follow how you can make this claim. But if you in your life make this claim for yourself, I'm not here to tell you that you can't as an adult. I'm here to tell you that it's pretty dang weird when you do it as a teacher to your students. And as the story goes, there's a middle school teacher in Texas um, who wanted to make sure that all the students knew that he, or is it she, was non-binary and use, instead of Ms., use MX. Well, no, because MX isn't a thing. MX is me, you wanting me to play into your world of, uh, of, of whatever it is, and I won't do it. You see, you can do it, but I'm not about to do it. But in this case, you ask students to do it. And the question is, why are you bringing this to students? You see, I think Britain is a criminal, and I think Britain needs to get fired from the White House. 
because Joe Biden said, if I see you treating people poorly, you will be fired on the spot. And I think stealing from someone is treating them poorly. And I think Biden needs to be held to his word. And I don't know why it hasn't happened yet that this guy who wants to tell me about how special he is and act in this way is not getting fired for theft. That's the kind of people they have in the, in the Biden White House? Okay. Except it's not okay. I want people fired. I want Biden to actually do something about this. Let's pretend you've got some level, Joe, of moral code. This teacher I want fired. Why? Why are you sharing your status with your students? They're students. Just teach math. Just yeah, and by the way, the teacher does uh, teach uh, uh, math, by the way, at a middle school in the Fort Worth Independent School District. No one cares about how you identify. It doesn't matter. Teach math. And if you can't do that as a teacher, goodbye. If you feel the need as a teacher to share your intimate life with your students, goodbye. That's not the role. And someone's going to say to me, well, Tony, you don't understand what it is to be an educator. Listen to me carefully. You have an encapsulated, captured audience that you can do anything with. If you feel the need to include your sex life of any style within that, you're the problem. Mr. and Mrs. and Ms., that's what we do. There's no mix that doesn't exist. You have to tell your students you're non-binary? No, you don't. I didn't know if my teachers were gay or straight. But absolutely, positively, no clue growing up. I didn't ask. Now, I would say that there probably would have been, if I'm remembering right, some levels of rumors uh, about things, but there were rumors about all sorts of things and students and teachers and everything else. If you paid attention to that kind of stuff, that's never going to go away. But teachers sharing with me their sex lives in terms of uh, uh, letting me know, oh, man, you will not believe what happened to me in the bedroom last night. That kind of stuff never happened because professionally there was a line, and that line seems to have been evaporated. That line should not be evaporated. The line of people choosing how to live their own lives, that should be there. The idea that they're allowed to share it with me or impart it upon me or force me to change my life because of it, that's unacceptable. And to do it to kids, that to me is criminal. Equally criminal, this guy Sam Britton stealing. You see, the story isn't that he calls himself non-binary. The story is, is that a Biden official stole from a luggage carousel. So why isn't he fired? Sometimes... What people discuss is the story isn't the story. You got to dig in a little bit and focus. I want this guy, Sam Britton, fired from the Biden administration. I want this teacher fired from thinking that she can share her whole life in such intimate detail with kids. And let's stick to what matters, shall we? Keep it here, guys. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. Miles Turner. And that's how the Pacers took down the Lakers 
116 to 115. Andrew Nebhart with the three, and, and he held it. He held it like he was MJ. Just wanted everyone to see the perfect form of that three-point shot. Tony Katz, good to be with you. The Pacers, you see, they're a good team. The Pacers right now are a very good team. The Colts losing to the Steelers on Monday Night Football 24-17, to and it wasn't that close, are a bad team. That's just the way it is. JMV joins us right now from 93.5-1075. The fan, and I'll start with the Colts game uh, because I got to start somewhere, Um, that the Colts were able to tie it up is certainly, or actually take the lead, is certainly very good. But you got to wonder whether that was more luck than reality because they did not play well in that first half at all. It was an abomination. Matt Ryan cannot throw, and this team couldn't stop a run. No, this team team lost to a, a team that sucks. And, yes, they're in it because the Steelers suck. That's why they were in it. Okay, they came out of the half, Tony, and they had a, a bit of a spark. I mean, how would you not have a spark after what you just described? The first half was maybe some of the worst football any of us has ever seen. And now we're talking about this Colts team near the bottom of the NFL for good reason, because they simply can't do anything right. This whole season's been a joke. And when you think about it, the Colts have told us, what they were going to do, what we should expect. They're going to win the AFC South. They're going to get a home playoff game. You know, expect them to be a presence in the postseason. You know what they've accomplished? Absolutely nothing. Tony, I'll tell you what else. It's not like they're going to magically snap their fingers and this thing is going to be back and competitive next year. I think because the way this has been put together and the outcome we have seen from the construction of Chris Ballard, this is set back for more than a year now. So I think you can expect next year kind of a feeling out process with whatever quarterback they're going to end up drafting. But this season has been an absolute joke, and it starts at the top with Chris Ballard. Does it start at the top with Chris Ballard, or does it start at the top with Jim Irsay? Yeah, Jim Irsay's right there, too. There's no question. I'm just talking about the construction of the team. Yeah, I mean, Jim Irsay is right there, too, as the owner, because he's the one that I'm talking about that says, hey, this is what we're going to do here. This is what we're going to do there. This is what this fan should expect. So in that part of it, there is no doubt. But the construction of it and where they are, considering where the rest of the NFL is going right now, think about this for a moment, Tony. That Steelers team that came in here and got that win, that three-win team, now four-win team in Pittsburgh, at the very least, they have a head start on a bad season with a quarterback that they're going to form and be their guy for the future. The Colts don't have anything anywhere near that. And this all starts with the construction of Chris Ballard. This is an absolute disaster. Now, I will say to you that when you've gone one and two under your new coach, you question why you ever got rid of Frank Reich uh, to begin with. But uh, let's say that Frank Reich had to go, and we may all well agree with that. For anything they want to tell me about Jeff Saturday bringing a spark to this team, did the Colts play like they had a spark last night? Not in the first half, they didn't. It seemed like that something got to them in the second. I'll give them credit for that, I guess. A small amount of credit. Because, I mean, you're in front of your home crowd on a Monday night for the first time since 2015. And, you know, organizationally, all you've done is cry about having a home Monday night game or home prime time games. And this is how, you know, you answer the bell whenever you're finally getting one. 
you know, on that main stage. So I'm not going to give them a lot of credit for that because they played so awful in that first half. But, yeah, I think it's kind of worn off. And, Tony, we'd actually talked about this before. We kind of wondered after that Vegas game, was that a shot in the arm of, you know, this is not only who we're playing because Vegas stinks, but this is also it's new and we're hearing a new voice. And we're going to see how long-lasting that is. Oftentimes, maybe you can ride it out a little bit longer. But in this case, it seems like it was kind of a fleeting shot in the arm that has just kind of faded away because when you come down to it, Tony, you get back to what is the grassroots of this team and how it's built, and especially with that offensive line. And it always starts there. Didn't protect in that first half last night. As you mentioned, Matt Ryan can't throw it. He's got a noodle arm, and that offense is an absolute mess, and that's what you expect. And, again, nothing against Jeff Saturday. I don't know Jeff Saturday could turn out to be Vince Lombardi. I'm not sure. I don't think he handled the clock. Uh, very well last night, and that's something I'm sure we'll talk about. But, you know, I think it's just been a shot of the arm and a combination of that first game that they faced a bad football team. But reality, I think, right now, Tony, is setting in with this football team. Talking to JMV of 93.5, The Fan, I will leave the clock management conversation to you. Uh, and and uh, another time, uh, we should note that the Steelers ran for 172 yards last night, and I don't think this is a ringing endorsement of this defense uh, at all. The question is, is Matt Ryan your guy next week? You're going to just start giving Sam Ellinger more reps? Or have we entered the Nick Foles era? Um, no, I think Matt Ryan is going to be the guy next week. At least that's what Jeff Saturday said last night. And, and for the most part, what Jeff Saturday has said, Jeff Saturday has, you know, backed up, I guess, um, his words. I mean, I don't know what, you know, Jim Mercer may try to decide behind the scenes because that's why we got Sam Ellinger and supposedly for the rest of the season, a little over a month ago, that was the decision made by the owner. But Jeff Saturday said last night that it's going to be Matt Ryan, you know, coming up next and Matt Ryan's going to continue to hold on to the ball too long and not throw it away. And, I mean, listen, if you watched that game last night or go back and watch it, I don't know why you'd want to, but Troy Aikman, Troy Aikman had great examples of how frustrating a Colts fan should be with that offense and that quarterback and how mismanaged and how awful it is. Uh, Troy Aikman was all over it last night in describing exactly how they were playing and wondering why they were playing that way and wondering what happened to Matt Ryan. It was on full display in a standalone nationally televised game last night for everybody to see, and it was embarrassing. Let's move it over to the Pacers beating the Lakers 116 to 115. That last second three point shot. The Pacers are 12 and 8. The Lakers are 7 and 12. Um, now, again, the, the Lakers may very well be better off without LeBron. I, I, I would certainly like to see that uh, for them, if only because I'm just exhausted by LeBron. Uh, but the Pacers at 12 and 8. This is a team that's playing pretty well. This is a team that keeps fighting to the end. Um, this is this is the kind of win that can make a team say, wow, we really can do anything, can it? Yeah, you know what they're doing? They're doing what I think a lot of people like to see the pace, or I should say the Colts be able to do, and that's, you know, looking at the future and you go, oh, wow, they have a nucleus of a growing, a very young team. And, you know, you kind of think about what they can be down the road. But, but Tony, right now they're giving it to you in the now. They're giving it to you in the moment. And last night was a great example of that. They were down 17 in the fourth, did not leave it, fought their way back into it. And then that final play that we've watched, and I heard, you know, you get the call from Valley Sports Indiana and Kristen Aaron and Quinn Buckter on my uh, uh, return into your show. It, it was interesting to note that, that Tyrese Halliburton 
And it's going to get lost in the shuffle because Andrew Nemhar, the rookie, made a great three over LeBron James. But it was Halliburton, you know, getting that tipped rebound off of the Miles Turner missed three, who basically got that pass for the game winner to Nemhart. Nemhart put that up with point four remaining on the clock. I can't even imagine that sense of presence that you have to have in that moment. That's certainly not a sense of presence that any of these Colts players have, but that's something that Halliburton has. He's been magnificent at the point. He showed that again last night. And all credit from the Gonzaga rookie for stepping up and draining a three on LeBron James at the buzzer. That's exactly what Indianapolis fans needed, especially after that Colts game. This team, Tony, is fun to watch, and they're also ahead of schedule. They're fun to watch ahead of the schedule, doing stuff in the now that we did not expect, and we'll see where it goes. But, man, last night last night was really special after just what was a disastrous football game in our town. Only 62 more games for the Pacers to go. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot to go, but I mean, you take it where you can get it. And last night, last night was fun. And, again, go back and watch that play with Halliburton making that decision in the final seconds there. It is amazing the calm, cool, and collective nature in which he handled that situation that I think most people would freak out about. It was truly amazing, even beyond the, the uh, Nemhard made three for the win. Yeah, the Pacers are fun to watch. They are. They're, they're fun to watch, and Gamebridge Fieldhouse is a fantastic place to see him. The whole thing is terrific. It is. It's great. It's a good time. Uh, personally, I'm a fan of not being lectured to, and they've done a very good job this last year of not lecturing. I'm not getting lectured by the NFL. I'm not getting lectured to by the NBA. These are all reasons to say, okay, I'll I'll come back and I'll enjoy a game. I'll come back and I'll enjoy a game. It'll be a good time. Be a good time had by all and we'll laugh and we'll sing. And I don't know if they'll be singing, but the Pacers are fun. Colts, not good. They're not good. And I don't want to hear, oh, Jeff Saturday, that was the right hire. You won't know that for years, years. Considering he's not going to be around in another couple months anyway, at least based on what Jim Irsay is saying. But the, 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 the fake, and it was, it was fake. Oh, such a great hire. You didn't know. You don't know until you know until you know. You don't know. He's one and two. And he should be three and oh. So we're clear, he should be three and oh. Should have won uh, against the Steelers. Should have won against the Eagles. Didn't do it. At least, uh, you know, I shouldn't say at least on the Eagles. No, no, teams just look bad. Uh, there's no, that's it. Don't know if they'll be bad for forever, but they're sure as hell bad right now. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. So over the past couple days, I have been discussing issues within medicine. And one of those issues being the lack of, of medicine. I think it was Newsweek talking about the lack of amoxicillin and antibiotic that are available in, in hospitals. Very hard to treat people, whether it's kids with RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which has been going up in cases, or a lot of other things if you don't have antibiotics. But ER doctors will tell you that there's been an incredible lack of medicines going on over the past year, past two years, whether you want to blame it on COVID or supply chain, really about where, where we get our things manufactured and we need to bring more manufacturing back to the United States that they don't have access to the necessary tools to be able to be truly effective at their job. But it seems that hospital groups, they're not worried about this. They're making sure that doctors are using the proper pronouns. And here, doctor group, wear these rainbow pins and uh, make sure you understand what inclusivity is all about. 
uh, haven't we reached the moment where we want doctors to heal what's wrong with us so we can get on with our lives? Well, that leads to a conversation about what it is they're actually teaching at medical schools and what I, as described, hospital groups are providing. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. William Jacobson joins us right now, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. He is the also the mind behind CriticalRace.org, which simply goes about noting what it is that's happening in schools and universities all across the country and also medical schools and those schools which have embraced critical race theory uh, directly. This led to a conversation, an article over at Fox News, critical race theory related ideas found in mandatory programs at 58 of the top 100 U.S. medical schools and led to a piece from William Jacobson about how the House of Representatives should get involved here. A lot of intro there, William. I don't usually do that to you, but I appreciate you holding on. Let's start with, you know, what I talk about about hospitals and hospital groups is very true. I have the anecdotal and and other information, but it's what's happening in medical schools that is absolutely frightening. 58 out of 100 U.S. medical schools utilizing critical race theory related ideas. What is it that you found? Well, uh, what we've seen is basically what has happened in higher education, colleges, and universities has trickled up into medical schools. So medical schools have very aggressive programs, and they call them different things. They might call it diversity, equity, and inclusion. They might call it anti-racism. They might call it a whole bunch of different things. But the core of it is the core of critical race theory, is to focus the analysis on race. Everything revolves around race. And that's what we're seeing. So we see training programs for students. We see course requirements for students. It's not 100% of the places, but a majority of them now require that students adhere to and study these um, racial folk, race-focused theories of society and implement those when it comes to medicine. So when you approach medicine, you approach it from that same racial lens that a sociology major in at Oberlin College might approach it. And so that's really the destructive aspect. It's taking medicine, which was always focused on an individual patient, and then putting those patients now into classifications in order to see achieve some perceived social justice end. And that's really the problem. It's really poisoning the whole atmosphere of medical schools. So let's talk about how this goes into application. Is this about how the patient is treated as a person or about how the patient is treated as a patient? Well, you know, that is one of the issues. And we've seen this in, in many, at many state levels during covid that there were prioritizations given to non-whites because of the perception that they've been victimized and that they don't, their communities don't receive the same health resources, things like that. But when a patient, two patients walk in the door, you treat those two people as individuals, not as proxies for their racial group or their ethnic group. And that's really the problem. And so we have seen this actually work its way into medicine and into how patients are treated. And that's the poisonous aspect of it. It's that it's not a theory. If you want to study these theories, you can take a sociology class in college. You can take a political science class in college. But why is this in medical school? Medical school was always supposed to be based 
on medicine, not based on polit politics and not based on social activism. And that's really what's the corrupting influence here. But let me uh, maybe turn the question a little bit. I'm talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. When a white patient shows up and a black patient shows up, one could argue you should treat each patient well in terms of hello, how are you, etc. But the actual course of treatment for each patient may very well be different based on those characteristics of white and black, just like they could be based on the characteristics of male or female, depending on the issue they've presented with. Are medical schools now saying, regardless of those factors that have a history of showing us, here's how you medically treat these people, um, don't pay any attention to that? There has to be a certain standard of care regardless of race or sex? Well, uh, two different issues here. One is how you uh, philosophize over the care of patients. When an individual patient comes in, of course, you take into account that individual patient's um, you know, uh, condition or that individual patient's perhaps ancestry because some groups have greater tendency towards certain diseases and things like that. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, Jews of East European origin have more tendency to carry the Tay-Sachs gene, okay? Um, so maybe you want to test for that. Um, there might be, for argument's sake, might be higher rates of diabetes in the black community. So when somebody comes in, you test for that. But that is very different than saying we're going to classify people and we're going to uh, provide resources to people and access to people based merely on their skin color. That's a very, so it's two very different things. And that's really what's uh, getting corrupted here, which is that, yes, of course, you take an individual patient's individual medical condition. Part of that medical condition could be their ethnicity or their race, because ethnicity and race sometimes create, uh, you know, medical risk factors. But that's very differently different than saying we're going to provide access to certain drugs based on race or we're going to provide community services based on race. Talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com and CriticalRace.org. This brings us to your piece. The incoming House of Representatives should hold hearings on the destructive racialization of medical schools and medicine. All right, I'll bite. How in the world does the House of Representatives get involved here? Is this a, a conversation about necessary legislation to put an end to this? Is this about funding? What is it that you'd like to see the House doing? Well, I'd like to first see them explore it and expose it to the public, what's going on, because I don't think the public generally understands this. And two, it is a question of funding, that the federal government funds so much of medicine, okay, either directly or indirectly, uh, funds so much of medical schools and hospitals, et cetera, through federal funding. So there are federal anti-discrimination laws. There are other aspects. So I think the federal government has a legitimate interest in understanding and exposing what's going on. Whether there is legislation required is not something that I'm really uh, clear on now. It might be that we don't need it. It might be that hospitals and that medical schools voluntarily can stop this stuff. But I think it's something, just because you don't know what the end result is going to look like, doesn't mean you shouldn't start to look into it. But people will say... 
that the doctors know best how to engage levels of care. But we have seen that, for example, in Minneapolis, they had an entire medical school class talk about how uh, they have to stand up for the indigenous people, which I'm not quite sure how it connects uh, to, to medical school. What is the pushback that you're expecting from medical schools? Well, I think you're right to say, oh, this is the, you're interfering in the doctor-patient relationship. Well, they're already interfering in the doctor-patient relationship by pushing ideologies that have nothing to do with medicine. Uh, why would a Native American land acknowledgement, that's what they call them, that's the trend now in higher education, what does a land acknowledgement have to do with patient care? So they are already interfering in that relationship. The question is, um, can they do that with federal funds? Can they use federal funds that are meant to teach students how to become good doctors? Can they also use those federal funds to teach political theory to those students, uh, you know, or sociology theory to those students? We don't know necessarily what the answer will ultimately be, but I think it's an appropriate mechanism for the legislative body that funds all this stuff to start to understand better what is happening and to have hearings on it. I think that's appropriate. Before I, I, I let you go, in, a, in an, a related but unrelated, in a piece that you wrote over at LegalInsurrection.com, uh, Dr. Fauci, who, who refuses to admit the idea that uh, a lab leak caused COVID, uh, saying it's, it's very, very unlikely, but his, he, he's willing to entertain the possibility, won't admit to the funding that we know took place uh, through uh, EcoHealth to uh, the, the Wuhan Virology Lab. As you have the story, in his deposition, he can't recall practically anything dealing with his COVID response. Is this Fauci getting ready to get out of public office and trying to avoid lawsuits that he do- he doesn't remember what he said? I doesn't recall what he said. He's not sure what he said here. All he knows is, is he's a genius. That's all he knows. And everything else he's not so sure about. Is this a play to try and keep himself from being sued going down the road? I don't know. That statement that you read was a statement by the attorney general of Louisiana, who is in attendance at the deposition as to how he characterized it. We don't have the transcript yet, uh, but the um, attorney general of Louisiana basically said that Fauci basically had no memory of so much stuff. Uh, You know, and so that's a characterization, but it is from the attorney general of Louisiana who was in attendance at the deposition. We don't have the transcript yet. I think Fauci, uh, I think he thinks very highly of himself. Uh, I think that's part of the problem. And I don't know what his plan is, but I think that his departure before the Republicans take over the House was an attempt to minimize the scrutiny of him. That's not to say he can't be subpoenaed, et cetera, to testify. But when you're actually a federal employee, you're under much you know, more direct oversight by the Congress than when you're a former employee. So I, I think that he will probably try to fight to avoid having to testify publicly about anything. Uh, and uh, the attorney general there in Louisiana, Jeff Landry, uh, the exact quote was, wow, it was an amazing it was amazing to spend seven hours with Dr. Fauci, the man who single handedly wrecked the U.S. economy based upon, quote, the science, unquote, only to discover that he can't recall practically anything dealing with his covid uh, response. So the answer is, yeah, maybe uh, the plan is just to get out as quickly as possible and then question whether or not a subpoena is valid. That was Adam Schiff 
uh, in California, you know, is he worried about getting subpoenaed? Well, first we'll have to see if the subpoena is valid. All of a sudden, uh, the Democratic Party learning that maybe you don't have to listen to subpoenas. Uh, this doesn't seem to be shocking, though, sir. Right. I mean, I think Adam Schiff needs to be put on a witness stand under oath and ask questions about whether he ever leaked any materials directly or indirectly, meaning through staff, to the press. Um, and I'd love to hear what his answer under oath about that is. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com and CriticalRace.org. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Oh, I do love a good walk back. Adore me a good walk back. The White House walking back Joe Biden saying, my goodness gracious, semi-automatic guns. They're only being made by gun manufacturers for profit. It's just sick. You mean the 9mm that's on my hip right now? Do you mean that semi-automatic weapon? The problem is Joe Biden, like so many on the left, don't understand anything about guns at all and don't have the decency when they don't understand not to say nothing. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. I am a Second Amendment guy. I am not a gun guy. I know certain basics. But when I want to get into a conversation about guns... I go to experts. I go to Cam Edwards of Bearing Arms. I go to Stephen Katowski of Reload. I go to Guy Relford uh, of the 2A Project. These are the people that I go to to get information to be able to break things down because they know things that I don't. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what the rational mind does. The political left doesn't even care because they see it all as bad. Ideologically, you should not be allowed to have a firearm. Ideologically, when the people don't have firearms, in reality, they become the people of China who are protesting against lockdowns and are going to get killed because they have no way to fight back and therefore the government doesn't have to fear the citizenry. Well, Tony, do you have to have a situation that's based on fear? You don't have to, but according to history and reality, yes. Yes, you do. And I don't mind if government fears the people. When the people fear government, that's when you have tyranny. And I've read enough history books to know that that sucks. So let the government fear the people. And what you have is over 200 years of prosperity, like in the United States. And we could go for another 200 years if we just set ablaze all the ridiculous uh, socialist, nay progressive, nay communist mindset. And I'm in favor of this. But here's cringe Jean-Pierre. Corinne Jean-Pierre, we call her Corinne Jean-Pierre, walking back Joe Biden saying, well, you know, we should get rid of all those semi-automatic weapons. Did the president misspeak or does he in fact want to ban all semi-automatic guns? That are no, he was, he was talking about uh, assault weapons. That's what he was talking about on that, on that morning or that afternoon when, when he was asked that question. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. I get that's what you're now saying, he said, but that's not what he said. Because he doesn't know what he's saying. Your whole job is to cover it up. And, and she looks so annoyed having to answer such a question. It's not our fault that your guy, the president of the United States, doesn't know the difference and doesn't care to know the difference. What else do you expect from an 80-year-old man? Now, that could be insulting to people like my father, who next month will be 85. But he knows. He's like, look, Tony, I've, I've, I've lost a little bit in my step. I, I am not as young as I used to be, but I'm sure as hell a lot better than Joe Biden. If I ever get to be Joe Biden pro- uh, problematic uh, and forgetful, do me a favor. Just start handling more of the everything, would you? I'm like, yeah, Dad, we got, we got you covered. We, 
we, we got this all understood. Another day, another walk back for this administration. It's what they do. It's who they are. They have to walk back everything. Everything. And they'll walk something back tomorrow. Find everything I'm doing, guys, over there at Locals. Would love it if you would subscribe. TonyCats.Locals.com. More and more over there as Facebook goes more and more away. By the end of the year, Facebook will be all done. And, man, I'll be very thankful about that. Maybe one day Facebook will also get purchased by Elon Musk, and I'll be happy to come back. But I'm just, I'm not, I'm not doing that now. (laughs) I'm just not doing that now. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.